Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again and enjoy today's message from Pastor Jim Kubik. So today we're going to start a new series, and that series is called, it's a Christmas series called All I Want for Christmas Is. And so I want to talk about what we want for Christmas. This is the time of year. How many of you guys have had someone over the last two or three weeks, whether it be your kids, the person you work next to, or whatever, say, you know what I want for Christmas, and then they fill in the blank. I know I have. I can remember when my girls were young. When I say young, I mean pretty young, because, well, that's, that's when kids do what I'm about to tell you. I, in October, I always went to them and I said, hey, this is what I want you to do. I gather them up. I get them excited about Christmas. I tell them, I say, this is what I want you to do. I want you to write a list of everything that you want for Christmas. And they would scurry off to wherever it is they scurried off to. Back in our days, we had the Sears catalog, but they'd open up their phone or their iPad or something and start looking through the stuff that they want on Amazon. But I, I enjoyed the Sears catalog when I was a kid, right? And so they go wherever it is they go. They scuttle off, and a couple days later, they always bring me back a list. And that list is, if you've ever been a parent, is about this long, right? And it's full of every imaginable and unimaginable thing that you can think of. And so I'd get this list and I'd look at it, and then I would say, again in November, I'd hold on to it for about a month, and then in November I'd say, all right, this is what I want you guys to do. I want you to go to your room. I want you to figure out what you want for Christmas. I want you to write a list. And they'd always say, well, we already gave you a list. I said, just go write a list. They'd go write a list, they'd scuttle off to their room, do whatever it is they do, and they'd bring back a list, and it would go from about this long to about this long. Because they wanted me to know what they really wanted for Christmas. There was a lot of fluff in the first list, stuff they'd like to have, but there's a difference between what you'd like to have and what you actually want, right? And then closer to Christmas, usually a couple weeks before Christmas, I'd say, hey, do me a favor. Go back to your room, write me another list. And that list would come back, it would have two or three things on it. And this is what they really wanted for Christmas. And that's the exact reason why I did it, because I needed them to realize what they wanted for Christmas, not just what they'd like to have. I think this is the reason why God tells us to pray without ceasing. Why to pray, keep praying, or seek, keep seeking, not keep knocking, Right? Because as we seek and as we knock and as we continue to do it consistently, we show God, we, start, we begin to start cutting off the fluff of the things we're asking God for and actually show Him our heart for the things that we want. And so Christmas time, we see that in the, in the list of our children. But I want to ask you, what do you want for Christmas? What do you as a Christian, as a believer, really want for Christmas? Really want for Christmas? And let me tell you, the answer for the Christian should be this. I want Jesus and the things that Jesus has to offer me. And so that's what we're going to talk about for the next four weeks. Not the fluff list. I want to talk about the list that we need, that we want, that we desire above all things. And we're going to do that in four areas. All I want for Christmas is hope, love, joy, and peace. And none of these things, seen properly, are seen without Jesus. Everybody understand? And so today we're going to start with all I want for Christmas is hope. Because we don't hope the way the world hopes. Or I hope you don't hope the way the world hopes. A lot of hopes. 
Because the world hopes from desire, not expectation. You hear me? Did you hear what I just said? Man, I hope I get that promotion. It's my desire to have that promotion. But I got no guarantee of that promotion. Man, I hope that guy likes me. Not me, that's what women would say, I would assume. <laughs> or, wow, I've gotten old in the 13 years Angela and I have married. I hope she still finds me attractive. I have no guarantee of that. Matter of fact, sometimes she looks at me like maybe I don't have the guarantee of that. But it's about what's on the inside that matters, right, babe? That's right. Which makes me maybe still in trouble a little bit. So we hope as the world hopes, when we hope as the world hopes, we hope out of desire, but that's not the hope that we have. We have a hope that is based in expectation. That what God says will happen. That what God says is true. I found a definition for hope that I, that I really enjoy, and this is what it says. Hope is the confident declaration that God is faithful. That He will complete what He has begun. It is also, therefore, that confident expectation that waits patiently and enthusiastically for God's purpose to be fulfilled. Did y'all hear that? That's beautiful, man. I'm going to say it again because I want you to sit under it for a minute. The confident declaration that God is faithful. Are you confidently declaring that God is faithful over your life? Do you believe that that's true? Do you hold that kind of hope? That He will complete what He has begun. It is also, therefore, the confident expectation that no matter how long it takes to come to fruition, no matter what I have to go through, God is going to do what God said He will do. This is the hope that we have. It's not based in desire because whether I desire it or not, God's still God. And so I, I live in expectation. We should live in expectation. And because we live in expectation, because the God that we serve brings us hope through Christ Jesus, our hope is sure because the one in whom we've placed our hope is sure. And I want to explain to you why I think that's true. No, I want to explain to you why I know that's true according to the Word of God. And so if you'll turn to Isaiah 25, verses 8 and 9, which is a messianic prophecy by Isaiah, one of the many. I'm going to teach from these two verses today. says, He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. I love that, for the Lord has spoken. You know why this is all going to happen? Because God said so. And it will be as said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that He might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited, let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. Amen. And so I'm going to teach out of this text three points. And I'm going to teach verse 9 first, and then I'm going to go back to verse 8. So if you'll, if you'll give me that, I appreciate it. And I'm going, to, I'm going to make three points, and here's the first one. Jesus brought hope. Verse 9a, the first part of that verse says, and it will be said in that day, the day of His birth, Behold, this is our God for whom we waited, that He might save us. Jesus came to save us. Amen? And so before the birth of Jesus, 
the world seemed hopeless. But they waited anyway because they had a hope based on expectation, not on desire. I want to I kind of survey something with you if I can. If you'll turn to Matthew chapter 1, it has the genealogies, the genealogy of Jesus. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to kind of overview it. Verses 1 through 17 is the genealogy. But verse 17 says this. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. How many generations is that? That's 28. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. How many generations is that? 42, right? For 42 generations, they hadn't received the promise that Abraham received. They still hadn't seen the Messiah. But because they knew that God is who God is and He does what He says He'll do, they waited patiently with hope and expectation that it would happen. Even when all else seemed to be failing them, Abraham in the first set of 14 generations received a promise. And in that promise, we see David ultimately culminated his, his, his promise that there would be a king on the throne. And so we see hope build. We see promises fulfilled in this set of generations. In the second generations from Solomon to Babylon, we see a relatively consistent decline in the state and the morals of Israel. And so they saw victory after victory after victory, more or less, I'm speaking in generalized terms, between Abraham and David. And then they saw loss after loss after loss after loss with the exception of one or two kings. None of them did what was right. Including Solomon, wisest man on the earth that ever walked the face of the earth. Didn't do all the things he should be doing. One of the greatest, and I've never heard this before, but I believe it's true, one of the greatest things that point to Absalom's, or Absalom's, to Solomon's problem, his, his not being like his dad, is that he didn't teach his sons. And because he didn't teach his sons, they didn't teach their sons. Because they didn't teach their sons, they didn't teach their sons. How do I know he didn't teach his sons? Because when Rehoboam came to the throne, he sought bad counsel and caused the kingdom of God to be split north and south. And we see a constant decline since then. Men, it's important that you teach your sons. We talked about this in men's Bible study yesterday morning. You have to teach your sons coming and going in your house and out of your house. It's a totally different subject. But ultimately Solomon to the Babylon, we see consistent decline culminating in God finally saying, you know what, I've had enough of you. I'm turning you over to Babylon and them taking into captivity. And in the third section of 14, we see Babylon to Jesus. I'm going to read this particular portion to you starting in 12. It says, After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, I don't know, pardon me, I don't have, a, these, these may be right or not, I don't know. Jeconiah named the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud. Man, y'all remember all the cool Bible stories about Abihud? Right, how many of you guys can recall a cool story about Abihud? Abihud was legit, right? Right, y'all, I don't have any idea who that is. Exactly. The father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor. That Azor was quite the warrior, wasn't he? 
Azor, the father of Zadok. Don't you get me started on Zadok. The father of Achim, and Achim the father of Elud. Elud the father of Eleazar. Eleazar the father of Nathan, and Nathan the father of Jacob. Now here's the people we start recognizing. Jacob, but it's only because Jesus showed up. Jacob was the father of Joseph, who just happened to be, people say he was a carpenter, he was likely, more likely a, a stonemason. Just some stonemason out in a part of the country nobody cared about. The husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. And so we see this incredible promise happening. And then we see the declination, the declining of the state of Israel. And then after Babylon, complete obscurity. You ever wonder why Jesus fulfilled every one of the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament and fulfilled them perfectly and nobody recognized him when he showed up? You should have wondered that. Because he came from nothing. He came from obscurity. Nobody knew who he was. Nobody knew who for 14 generations that he was of the lineage of David. But they held on to their hope anyway. Even in their obscurity. You know why? Because God keeps his promises. You may not be, they may not have been able to put their finger on that Jesus was the Messiah, but they hoped for a Messiah. They never lost their hope. We never get the chance. We never get the right to lose our hope in the promises of God. We have to stand boldly and confidently in the promises of God. You know what's awesome about the promises of God? You can lean on them with no fear of breaking them. If he said it, it's true. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should what? Anybody? Repent, which means that he should change his mind. We say that, we repeat, we repeat this all the time. But I think the second half is equally significant. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? These are rhetorical questions. If he made a promise to you, if he declared a promise in his word, he will make it good. He won't only make it good, he will do it exactly as he said he would do it. Because he's not a man that he lies. He can't lie. He will not lie to you. If there's a promise in the word of God, it is for you, then seize a hold of it. Cast your hope on it. And plant your root in that promise. That's good. That's good preaching right there, as Pastor Greg would say. Lean on that promise. But you know, the, the promise of Abraham wasn't the first time that Israel was given a promise or that the people of God were given a promise. Genesis 3.15 says this, and I, will not, and I will put enmity between you, between you, he's talking to the devil, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Jesus was the embodiment of that promise. From the very first day, from the very first time centered into the world through Adam, God showed up and gave us a promise that he's going to restore us. And our hope, our declarative expectation is that that promise came true in Jesus Christ. This is why our hope is different than the world's hope. Because it's, it's not fallible. There's no lie in it. There's no shadow in it. Is it exactly as God says that it would be? 
And so I want to talk about these promises today in this first bullet point. What hope did Jesus bring with His coming? If He was declared from the very beginning of the sinful man, if He was seen or expected in all three of the 14 sets, or all 14 of the three sets of generations, what were they waiting on? What had they cast their hope in? And the reason I'm going over this is because the, the thing they cast their hope in is the thing that you can cast your hope in. Because the promise made 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago on your behalf is as good a promise as if God made it to you in your bedroom getting ready for church this morning. And so here's the first promise that I want to talk about. And all of these are going to come from Isaiah. Isaiah 7.14 Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. And she will call him Emmanuel. I want to focus on Emmanuel. You know what Emmanuel means? God with us. That God Himself would manifest on earth through a virgin. That we might have an eternal hope. That He might be an eternal example to us. To show us not only what holiness looks like, but to show us how to be in relationship with Christ, with God, the Father. And as God Himself, we have these promises. Isaiah 11, 1 through 4 says this. And I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm trying to build your hope today. Listen to me. I'm trying to build your hope today in Christ Jesus, not Jim Cubic's opinion. And so I'm going to spend a lot of time just reading from the Word this morning. Because this is what we cast our hope on. 11, 1 through 4 says then this, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. This brings us hope. Let me explain to you why. What am I trying to do today? Just trying to bring you hope. Let me explain to you what this means. In verse 1, I love that he, he gives us a promise in the very first verse. That his shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. That his life will bear fruit. That his death will bear fruit. You know what that fruit is? You. There was a promise made to you that you will be the fruit of Christ Jesus from the very beginning. Because the plan that God has is a plan that was put in place before the foundations of the earth. Before you took your first breath, before generations before you took theirs, God already saw you and had a plan to bring you into his family. You are the fruit that His sacrifice bore. And this should bring us hope because now I know that God has seen me eternally and made a plan for me to be with Him eternally. And if I can't hope on that, i got no hope at all. But you know what else it says? In verse 3 it says this, He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what His eyes see, nor make a decision by what His ears hear. What? You know what that means? 
That means he's not going to make a decision about you based on what he's seen or what he's heard about you. Man, I got to tell you, that gets me weak in my knees. Because he's seen me do some crazy stuff. And prior to him, I didn't have a great reputation. So many of us want to judge other people by what we see or what we've heard of them. The Word of God promises that He's not going to do that for us. He's going to judge us according to the righteousness that we carry, which is the beginning of the next verse. The righteousness that we carry is His righteousness, not ours. We have a promise that we don't have to worry about the reputation that we had, that the life that we lived. Because the Bible says that once we ask forgiveness for sin, that God is faithful to forgive us and produce in us righteousness. Which means He's going to take the sin from you. He's going to place it behind Himself where He can't see it. He's going to move it as far from the east as from the west, which means those two can never touch. He's going to place it in the sea of forgetfulness. You don't have to worry about the sin that you've confessed, confessed because God Himself has promised to forget about it. He doesn't care about your reputation. You know what He cares about? He cares about your hope, your trust in Christ Jesus. And that in that hope and trust in Christ Jesus, that positive declaration that you come into righteousness in relationship with Him. That's what He's going to judge you on. And if that doesn't bring us hope, man, what have we got? All I want for Christmas is hope. And the Word of God declares it if we'll listen to it. Isaiah 61.2 says this, 61.1 and 2. says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to the prisoners. That's a mouthful of hope right there. You know what I love about this? We see this verbatim in, in Luke. The Gospel of Luke. Jesus Christ comes out of the desert. Man, he's been tempted by the devil. You know the first thing he does? It's a word for y'all. He goes to church. People say, you don't have to go to church. Jesus did. Right? Man, I don't know why I can't get away from the trials and the temptations of the devil. I ain't saying, I'm just saying. But anyway, so he goes to church. He pulls out the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads this. And after reading it, he rolls it back up, looks at them, and says, Today, this is fulfilled in your presence. He makes the declaration that I am who Isaiah was talking about. So why is there hope in this verse? There's hope in this verse because he says he has come to bring, that he has been anointed, that he has the manifest presence of God on him to bring the good news to the afflicted. You know what the good news to the afflicted is? The good news is the greatest news, and the greatest news is the gospel. I am the gospel message. He is the gospel message. And that brings us hope. He came to bind up the brokenhearted, to make you whole. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I don't want to. I don't want you to be upset or think I'm calling you out. But there's people in this room who are brokenhearted. Life didn't turn out like you thought it would. Your finances aren't what you think they should be. Your marriage isn't what you think it should be. You're bound by an addiction you can't seem to shake. I don't know what you're dealing with. 
It might be something simpler than that. Maybe you just can't get your head right. You know what the Bible says? That you have hope that in Christ Jesus, He will bind up your broken heart, no matter what broke it or how broke it is. Because can I tell you, a small crack in your heart is a big crack to God. That He wants to bind that up for you. And then finally it says in this particular verse, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. He removed us from oppression and folded us into His family. He, we just sang it. He broke the chains for us so that we might walk and hold us in freedom. That's hope worth grabbing a hold of. That's not, that's not hope out of desire. I don't desire that Jesus Christ do things for me. I make a positive declaration that Christ has done for me. And in instances where he hasn't done for me yet, where I haven't seen my promise fulfilled, I wait patiently in hopeful expectation that he is going to. Not that he might. Because there's no might in the promise of God. There's only will in the promise of God. And then finally, Isaiah 53, 4 through 5 says, you guys are familiar with it. I use these verses all the time. I'm not trying to teach you something new. I'm just trying to bring into remembrance the things that you hopefully already know. One of the things that frustrates me is when pastors get up on their podium and they try to spin the word to make it sound fresh and new. Nothing new under the sun. Sometimes we just need to be brought to remembrance the promises that we have. Isaiah 53, 4-5 Surely your griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging we are healed. Let me tell you the hopeful expectation you should walk in in regard to these verses. He bore your grief, your sicknesses. Whatever deprived thing in you, or yeah, deprived thing in you, whatever thing in you isn't exactly like it should be, the things that cause you grief, the things that cause you misery. He came to take those things from you ultimately. He, ca he, he took our sorrows and carried them, which means He freed us from physical and mental pain. He, he was pierced for our transgressions, which means for our violations of the law. Which means He took what you deserve so that you wouldn't have to take it. He was crushed for our iniquities, our wickedness. He was pierced and crushed so that we wouldn't have to stand under the consequence of the actions that we decided consciously to take. Isn't that awesome? I know very few people, matter of fact, I don't know of anybody that's ever sinned without intentionally acting. And even though it was intentional, Jesus Christ came here to take that from you. And then finally, the infliction of suffering, the chastening, which is an infliction of suffering, He took so that we might benefit from His suffering. And by His scourging, we are healed. Where do you need healing? 
You need healing in your body, in your mind, in your spirit. There's a hope, a true hope. Not a, not a desirous hope, but a true hope that Christ offers those things to you. Man, I'm telling you, that's something to celebrate Christmas over. That Jesus brought upon His birth hope. You know why that's glorious? Because of point number two. Because He brought hope, He brings hope. Because of the work that He did, He brings hope to us. Verse 9b says, This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. His salvation is our hope. Because we can have all of these promises, but if He didn't actually show up and do it, what good are they? Praise God, we have a God that doesn't lie. We don't have a God that repents. Jesus showed up 2,000 years ago. We hope on the Lord because He is the only promise of our salvation. John 14.6 proves this point. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Who comes through the Father but who comes to the Father? Any other way than Jesus. Anybody? Nobody. How do you come through the Father? Jesus. You can't do it because you're a good person. You can't do it because you gave money to the Salvation Army or to the church. You can't do it because you usher faithfully every Sunday. I don't care about any of that. In regards to your salvation, there's only one way to salvation. Do all the stuff you want to, but until the stuff you do is get down on your face before the greatness of who God is and the work that Jesus Christ did, you're as bad off as you were before you even got started ushering. Matter of fact, some of y'all be better ushers if you do that first. Oh. <laughs> Through Jesus only. Because without the work of Jesus, we would still be enemies with God. Jesus had to do the work to remove us from enmity. Let me give you two verses that I think are pretty significant. Romans 3.23, everybody's familiar with this. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? All of us have sinned. All of us have sinned. Don't beat yourself up over the sin you used to commit. The guy sitting next to you probably committed sin worse and uglier than your sin. The guy talking to you probably committed worse sin than you've committed. But you know what? I've committed my sin to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I've learned, and as I've hopefully I've shown you, God's forgotten it because I ask forgiveness for it. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But because we did fall short of the glory of God, we were subject to the wrath of God. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Hmm. Come on. But, praise be to God, He had a plan. Why is sin such a big deal? Let me, let me back up just a little bit. Why is such a, sin such a big deal? Why does sin deserve wrath from God? What does He care? Let me tell you why He cares. Because you were created in the image of God. I'm going to simplify this. There's a book out there called R, by R.C. Sproul titled The Holiness of God. If you, don't got, if you don't have it, go get it. Buy five copies of it. Give four to your friends. 
and then read it at the beginning of every year. It, in, this, in this book, R.C. Sproul explains why sin is such a big deal in a way that I could never have been smart enough to explain it myself. He said, you're, you're made in the image of God, which means you reflect God to the world. Which means anytime you sin, after having confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're saying to the world, this is what God looks like. Man, that ought to just get you, that ought to get your knees knocking together. Because every time you lie, you're saying God's a liar. Every time you commit adultery, you're saying God's an adulteress. Every time you steal, you say God's stealing. Every time, let me simplify it. Every time you glutton, you're saying God's a glutton. And God isn't any of those things. If you don't think it's true, test this. Go to your workplace where you know there are people there just dying to judge you and say, I'm a Christian. And see what happens the next time you reflect a sinful character to them. What are they going to say? I thought you were a Christian. I thought you knew God. Is that what God looks like? If we're reflecting God poorly, no wonder He shows wrath to us. And no wonder we deserve that wrath. We should live our life so as to reflect God properly. This is the power of the Holy Spirit to give us the ability to walk in Christ's likeness so that we don't give false testimony to who God is. But He had a plan for us, so that even though we deserve the wrath of God because we've fallen short, 1 John 4.10 says this, in this is love. Not that, he loved, not that we loved God, because we didn't love God. We didn't have the ability to love God. We were dead in our trespasses. We were dead in our sins unprovocable until the Holy Spirit provoked us. Amen? But that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is one of them big Christian words we always talk about. Let me tell you what it means. It means atonement. And some of y'all are going, well, that didn't help me at all. Atonement means that He paid your debt. What debt did you owe? You owed death. And Jesus paid it. You deserve the wrath of God, which is death. And Jesus paid it. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you. Amen. That ought to bring us hope, because even though I deserve death, I don't get death. I got Jesus. Where I deserved to be hated and and have the wrath of God poured out on me, I got love from God where there was no love. Am I talking to anybody today? What does your Christmas list really look like? Romans 5.9 says this, Much more than, since that's true, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Justified by the blood. Justified. Made innocent. But not just made innocent, but be standing as though we were never charged in the first place. By the shedding of His blood. Because without the shedding of blood, there is what? No remission of sin. Life for life. There's life in the blood. 
And Jesus gave his life so that you wouldn't have to give yours. We are justified by the blood of Jesus. And bringing hope, Jesus sealed that hope in us with a promise. Jesus gave us his Holy Spirit as a seal of the hope that we have. Let me read you this verse. I tell you this because we need to be constant really remembering or be in remembrance of the hope that we have. You know how we get that constant remembrance? By the Holy Spirit that's been placed in us. Ephesians 1.13 says, In Him, who also after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, it says, so once you've heard the gospel message, once you heard about how it brings salvation, and once you accept the way in which it provides salvation, this, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. God gave us His Holy Spirit to show a few things. To show us that what we have in Him is authentic. That we truly are part of His family and part of His kingdom. He gave us His Holy Spirit to prove ownership. Did you know you're owned by God? He paid for you through the blood of His Son, Jesus. That's why we call Jesus Christ Lord and not something else. Because we're supposed to, we have to do what the Word of God says. You're not a slave to sin anymore, but you are still a slave. You're a slave to righteousness. Oh, wait a minute, I don't like that. I don't care if you like that or not. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord, you're a slave to righteousness. You have to do what the Word of God tells you to do. People say, man, Jesus is my Savior, but never made Him Lord, then He's not Savior. Because He can't be Savior unless He's Lord first. Because this is a declaration that we make according to Romans 10, 9. Not that we declare that Jesus Christ is Savior, but that we declare Jesus Christ is what? Lord. Where did we get that mixed up in the doctrine? You can't be saved unless you're willing to stand in obedience to the Word of God. But it shows ownership in us. And that that ownership is official and final. He gave us that whole, the Holy Spirit as a pledge to us. And as, as an installment to show us that we belong to Him. Essentially, He gave us an engagement ring. Much like a man would give a woman an engagement ring to say, Listen, I promise that you're going to belong to my family. That I'm going to take care of you. That I'm going to bless you. That I'm going to love you that I'm not going to let anything come against you. That I will be here forever. So not only did we have a hope, but we have a pledge of that hope living inside of us. Number three. First, Jesus brought hope. And in the current salvation, He brings hope. Verse, this third point, Jesus will bring hope. So there's a past, present, and future hope that every believer carries or should. <clears throat> Verse 8, For He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, 
and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. We are glad because in Christ we have hope of an eternal future. Mama, I think of you. And I think of the people that I know have lost people that they love. And your hope is that you're going to see them again. Your hope is that you're going to be ever and eternally in the presence of an almighty God. Our hope is sure. 1 Peter 1, 3-5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. What caused us to be born again? Our own will? No, God's mercy. His love where we deserve judgment. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Reserved in heaven. I lost my page here. Reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Man, I love the promise of this verse. Or these verses. That He has shown mercy to us. Because of His mercy we're saved. And because Christ was resurrected. In our salvation we can we know that we too will be resurrected. 1 Corinthians 15.20 makes us this promise when it says, But Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who were asleep. As first fruits, it means He's the first. Which means there must be something coming after. That's us. He is the evidence that because He was resurrected, we shall be resurrected too. That we shall have eternal life. That we will take off the perishable and put on the imperishable. That we will take off imperfection and put on perfection. That we will put on the defiled and take off the undefiled. Or put on the undefiled and take off the defiled. All of this is Christ's work, not ours. And it's the hope that we have for our future. And that future is eternal, never to be separated from us. And in that eternity, all we'll know is perfect love. There will be no tears, no crying, no pain, no suffering, no sickness, no disease. For one reason. Because my God said so. Because my God said so. I want to go back to the definition that we talked about in the first part of this lesson. Hope is the confident declaration that God is faithful. Do you believe that God is faithful? That He will complete what He has begun. It is also, therefore, that confident expectation that waits patiently for the eternity we're talking about and enthusiastically for God's purpose to be fulfilled. I can't wait till the day that I'm in the presence of perfect love. You know, my wife and I, from time to time, because I'm a words of affirmation guy, I like people tell me how cool I am. That's what that means. I asked her, I said, tell me why you love me. And it's become a little game that we play, but, but it's important to me. 
and she she'll tell me something and she'll tell me something sweet and I appreciate that and in those moments those intimate moments that just between she and I I feel a, a love for her in those moments like I don't feel even though I know she loves me all the time that I may not feel at other times in our relationship I can almost feel myself being wrapped in the love that my wife has for me as awesome as that is, you recognize, or I hope you recognize, that the love that she and I share is merely a shadow of the love that God has for us. And so in the moments when I feel completely enveloped by the love that she has for me, I know that there's a love waiting for me in eternity that is going to be so much more incredible than that. That warmth that I feel is going to be so much bigger than that. That confidence that I have is going to be so much bigger than that. The love that we show one another is a mere shadow of the love that God has for us. And we get to spend eternity in it. Ah, what a hope. My hope for you this Christmas. And I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm speaking of desire today. Right now. My desire for you is to recognize that you have a hope in Christ Jesus. And that you walk out that hope in confidence. And that you display that hope to other people. And perhaps even speak that hope to other people so that they might have the hope that you have. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, in Jesus' name, we love you and thank you, Heavenly Father, that you love us, that you have demonstrated your love for us so wonderfully so magnificently in your son Jesus God as we move through this Christmas season I ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit you keep us focused on the things that we really want remove cut away the fluff of the season for us so that we might spend time in your presence acknowledging that only in your presence are we truly loved are we truly cared for are we tr truly blessed God, I pray for every person in this room that this season be a season of love and joy and hope and peace. That you hold us, God, according to your word and your righteous right hand, that you don't let go of us. God, if there's any person hurting in this room because the season I know can be difficult, I ask that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, give them a peace beyond comprehension so that what we've discussed today will become a true reality to them. I praise you, God, for who you are. We thank you for the work of your son, Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.